Hello, and welcome to the Sex Within Marriage Podcast. I'm JD, and you can find out more about the podcast, blog, and resources we produce, as well as our marriage coaching over at uncoveringintimacy.com. Today, we have another episode of answering questions about marriage and sex from our anonymous Have a Question page on our website. We're answering questions we received back in October, everything from orgasms to masturbation to cross-dressing to sleeping during sex and some more. So let's dive right in. So the first question that I got is about other types of orgasms. This reader asks, do you think that braingasms, heartgasms, and full-body orgasms are legit? I heard that some sex therapists believe that they are, and they have courses on how to achieve them. From my understanding, one of the courses teaches men how to achieve these orgasms by focusing on their breathing and doing kegels during sex. This is supposed to allow sexual energy to move through the body and couples can transfer energy between each other. Uh, I think it also teaches something about the key sound. It seems to be based on tantric and taoist sexual practices. All this sounds rather interesting, but I don't think these therapists really hold a Christian sexual ethic. I'm trying to figure out whether these types of courses and techniques that are taught are legit or whether they are mostly a new age scam. I think breathing together during sex can be relaxing and potentially allow for a deeper connection, but I'm not sure that I could do it for an entire session. Kegels have their benefits, as you have acknowledged, but is it reasonable to try to do them for an entire lovemaking section? session would like your perspective on these things so there are a few things here to unpack uh do i think that things like braingasms heartgasms and full body orgasms are legit yes and no i think people experience things that uh they describe as those things i'm not entirely sure they are those things themselves it's sort of like uh, a clitoral orgasm versus a vaginal orgasm do people experience orgasms from having their Clitoris stimulated? Yes. Do they experience orgasms from having their vagina penetrated? Yes. Do they feel different to some people? Yes. Are they different things? I'm not sure about that one. In fact, it's sort of hard to pinpoint what an orgasm is exactly. Uh, Even now, there's no one generally accepted definition of what an orgasm is. Uh, Doctors who deal with a body will tend to define it as some sort of muscle contraction and then release, often due to sexual stimulation, but not always, that in men causes ejaculation, but not always. And doctors who deal with the mind will cite the feelings, emotions, chemical changes in the body that occur with orgasms. Um, using that definition, people can have orgasms without any physical stimulation at all and without the physical side effects. So it's hard to pin down what causes an orgasm even. Is it because the body is stimulated and that stimulates the mind, which causes an orgasm and then sends pleasure back to the body? Or is that the mind is stimulated, which causes the body to get aroused, have an orgasm, and then send those sensations back to the mind? Um, Or maybe it's both. You know, and there seems to be some sort of sympathetic or mirroring systems going on here. You know, you can have an orgasm purely from mental stimulation or purely due to physical stimulation. Are they the same thing? Nobody seems to know. And uh, that said, I think trying to narrow it down to types of orgasms, you know, braingasm, heartgasm, full body, clitoral, vaginal, anal, nipple is largely futile. After all, I don't think we should be trying to chase different types of orgasms, but rather we should be chasing intimacy. And towards that end, things like synchronized breathing can help. I I don't believe that we are aligning our chakras or energies or spirits or souls, but I do believe in building rapport and synchronized breathing does that. Having rapport makes you feel connected and that helps you feel intimate. 
Things like Kegel exercises during sex can help in a couple ways. For one, you're exercising those muscles that are used during sex and produce arousal, which pulls more blood into the area, increasing sensitivity, and also makes you focus on the feelings that you're having. And it's hard to do Kegel exercises without thinking about your genitals. And if you're having sex at the same time, that makes it a lot harder to disconnect and disassociate. So again, that helps you feel connected to your body and what's going on, which in turn helps you feel intimate because you feel more connected to the other person too. And I think a lot of the time there's an overlap between science and let's call it meta-science. And by meta-science, I mean the discussion about what's going on behind the science, be it philosophy or religion or whatever. And often philosophy and religion are trying to explain the world that they see, but without any actual empirical evidence. Uh, they see something occur and then come up with a story for what it might be so. And now, I'm not discounting religion. You know, I'm a Bible-believing Christian. Um, but there is a whole lot of man-made doctrine that we surround the Bible with that isn't from the Bible. It wouldn't surprise me if Christians believed at one point that, you know, sin was heavy, and that's what keeps us stuck to the ground. And if you die and are still sinful, well, then you sink to hell. And if you die and are righteous, then you float up to heaven. And that kind of sounds silly because we understand gravity from science. Uh, we're all taught it from a young age. But we don't all learn things like neuroscience. And so there are some beliefs out there that aren't based on the Bible nor science uh, that even Christians sometimes believe. For example, there are doctrines that will try to explain things like the connection you feel with someone you've had sex with as a soul tie. Um, they don't know how neurochemicals work, that oxytocin helps you feel connected, that dopamine makes you feel makes it so that your brain wants to do that again, connects it to that person, that vasopressin makes you want to protect that person that you're with, and on and on. And because of that lack of knowledge, people come up with a spiritual reason for why you feel connected to someone you've had sex with. And that spawns a whole doctrine about how souls work. But it's not based on the Bible. It's purely based on somebody's feelings and saying, there must be a reason, but without having any actual uh, method for describing it. So they come up with a spiritual reason. At other times, you know, religion tends to inform art, and then that in turn informs religion. A famous example is Dante's Inferno. And if you're not familiar with it, it's a 14th century poem, rather large poem, uh, written in Old Italian. Um, but there are English translations out there if you want to find it. And it fits in a trilogy called the Divine Comedy. Uh, and it, this trilogy depicts a man who travels through hell, and then he also travels through uh, purgatory and heaven in the other books um, called Purgatorio and Paradiso, respectively. And the things he writes uh, in these books, they have been looped back into Christianity, causing people to believe things that aren't from the Bible. Uh, one of these ideas that people hear about is um, the nine circles of hell. Um, that's directly from Dante's Inferno. Uh, even the idea that there are a level of punishments in hell um, are taken from this act of, uh, work of fiction. These things aren't found in the Bible. And more subtly, the idea that hell is a place of ongoing kind of eternal torment and punishment is largely influenced, influenced by Dante's work and alters how Christians read and translate the Bible as well. Another work that gets heavily leaned on in our society in regards to these kinds of things is uh, Plato's Symposium. 
And this is a story that uh, Plato told about uh, a dinner party, and each of the guests had to tell, tell a story. And one of the guests tells this uh, tale about how men came to be, that they were originally created with four arms, four legs, two heads, but they were so powerful, you know, the men challenged the gods. So the gods cut the men in half so that they have to spend the rest of their day looking for their other half, our soulmate, uh, rather than rebelling against the gods. And from this, we get this whole doctrine of soulmates, which te- lends itself to then soul ties and a bunch of other beliefs about what a soul is and isn't. And all this leads to confusion about what is a soul and what isn't a soul, about what happens to our souls when we have sex, and a belief that there is some sort of spirit within us that can interact with other spirits in some spiritual way that doesn't necessarily include our body. And when Christians believe this to be true, it's a lot easier to believe and adopt things like soul gazing and tantric connections and aligning chakras and all that stuff, some of which can hold a small amount of truth. For example, I don't believe soul gazing is one soul connecting to another through the eyes, but I do believe that looking someone in the eyes builds rapport, which again leads to feeling connected. So all that to say that we have to be careful about what we take in from external sources and how it informs our beliefs, because while learning about the things like the key sound or synchronizing energies and all that might be interesting, it might be describing actual systems that exist and can be explained, you know, by science or the Bible. And, but the way that we learn these things, the package that it comes in, um, they can affect how we see the world and how we interpret the word. All right, next question. This person writes, I have a friend whom I attended college with who ended up not being able to finish college due to a lot of health problems, including PTSD. I don't think this individual had the best family situation. Recently, I found out that this person is identifying as a transgender guy and has been on hormone replacement therapy for about eight months, and I'm pretty sure that the hormones are coming from Planned Parenthood. This person also claims Christianity and attends an Episcopalian church. I'm pretty sure. Politically, this person has become quite far left, basically calls themselves a socialist and an anarcho-syndicalist. I wanted to know how to best minister to this person and explain why their beliefs are faulty, yet be loving towards my friend at the same time. Okay. There's a whole bunch of stuff in there that I'm not going to touch, like that Planned Parenthood and that it's Episcopalian Church, because I don't, and I don't even know what and whatever that other big word was, is. Um... And I don't think they really matter. What matters is that we have a struggle in Christianity often. Uh, We have these verses that say uh, in Matthew 7, verses 1 to 3, Judge not that you be judged, for with the judgment that you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? And many Christians are quick to quote uh, this thing to tell us not to judge and usually without the subsequent verse, uh, Matthew 7, verse 5, that says, Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from the other other brother's eye. So it's not that we shouldn't be looking at other people, it's that just we should clear up our own stuff first. Uh, there's also one in James uh, 4, verse 12, that says, There's only one law- lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who... Who are you to judge your neighbor? You know, or we have one in Romans two verse one. You therefore have no excuse who you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. And Romans fourteen verse thirteen. 
Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your minds not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. But then we also have these other verses that say, like in Proverbs 31, verse 9, speak up and judge fairly, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Uh, we have 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 to 3 that say, if any of you has a dispute with one another, do you tear take it before an ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you know not? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Or John 7, verse 24, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Or Zechariah 8, verse 16, These are the things for... These are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. So we have a whole bunch of verses telling us to judge, and telling us not to judge, and other ones telling us to judge well. And how do we reconcile these things? And here's the best that I can figure out based on all the available verses and the principles I see in the Bible. That we should judge those things for which we've been given authority and permission to judge. For example, uh, a judge in, in our legal system is educated, chosen, and trained uh, to judge wisely in court. By living in a country that has laws, you implicitly agree that you will follow them and that you accept that a judge has authority to interpret that law. Uh, by simply living in the country, you agree to be judged. Uh, he will not judge, judge whether you are a good or bad person, merely whether your actions are correct or incorrect, or more specifically, lawful or unlawful. Likewise, when we become members of uh, a church, we ask our fellow believers to help us uh, hold to the laws and principles that that church believes in. There are actions that will bring judgment within the church body. For example, if you have an affair, someone is likely to come talk to you, as I believe they should. Um, if nobody does, I think the church has kind of abdicated some of their responsibilities. Yeah. <clears throat> I have a friend in my church who wanted to stop watching the news and instead read his Bible at night. Uh, so I used to text him every once in a while to ask him, you know, are you watching the news or reading your Bible? And sometimes he'd say, I'm reading my Bible, and sometimes he'd say, I'm shutting off the news. And he didn't get upset that I was holding him accountable because that's what he said he wanted to do. I wasn't judging his heart. We're all fallen, all sinful, all fallen, all in need of redemption. But I was judging his behavior with permission. So then your friend who is in a church, which I assume is fine with his lifestyle, uh, has not prescribed to your beliefs about that lifestyle. So that how then can you hold them accountable? You know, by what authority or permission can you? Uh, and what would you gain by correcting them? Even, you know, in quotes, in love, as some people say, likely you will lose a friend and have and lose any chance to minister to them in the future. Uh, when they're ready, they can start asking questions about your beliefs or opinions about their lifestyle or similar things. And when it comes up, you can share what you believe and why. Uh, but if you're going to have those conversations, you might want to think about the why. Uh, just repeating, it's wrong, is not going to convince them that uh, of anything other than Christians are just blindly following archaic beliefs. So in other words, I'd say love them where they are rather than judge them for where you think they should be. Um, that's how I deal with those things. Anyways. All right, we've got a wife who asks, The last couple of months, my husband started masturbating after we fall asleep, but the problem is the bed is shaking and I couldn't sleep. In the beginning, when he started to do it, I would just go out 
to the guest room to sleep. But when I see no end to it, I decided to ask him what's going on and told him the reason why I've been going to the guest room. He was so shocked and very apologetic and says he doesn't remember. I believe him and we joked about it and said we should have more sex. Well, it didn't stop. I'm not happy. We've been married over 20 years and we've never had this problem. I don't think he's cheating because he's always with me except his workplace. I don't know what to think. Do you? I've not been sleeping well for a while now. Okay. So, assuming he's telling the truth about not knowing that he's doing it, this is actually uh, a condition that's called sexsomnia. Uh, it's kind of like sleepwalking, except the behaviors are sexual rather than just walking around. And I've had some people tell me that sometimes they wake up having sex and neither spouse knows who started it. Uh, in that case, both of them experience sexsomnia. But in this case, it wasn't really bothering either of them. They just thought it was funny and they quite enjoyed the outcome. So uh, it wasn't bothering them at all. In your case, you should probably talk to a doctor about it because um, the cause is likely due to an underlying sleep disorder that, uh, if treated, will likely solve the sexomnia issues as well. Uh, however, untreated, the underlying sleep disorder might be pointing to a serious issue that's being ignored. So it might be worth checking out and going to a doctor. All right, next question is about cross-dressing again. It seems like every month this keeps coming up, uh, but the questions are all slightly different, so I'm going to keep answering them until we start going over the same thing over and over again. So this person writes, Hey, Jay, first of all, thanks for this amazing resource. I've only recently found your site during a Google search on pegging, and it's been amazingly helpful. I believe that sex is an important part of a Christian marriage and a subject that doesn't get as much honest attention as it needs. From what I've read here, you have the same basic core beliefs that I have. It's refreshing to know that there are other Christians out there that are a little open and adventurous adventurous sexually and willing to tell others about their beliefs. People are searching for answers, trust me. So this is a very necessary ministry. Anyways, on to my question. I read your cross-dressing post and your recent answer to the question about a man wearing women's panties for comfort, and I want to chime in on the subject. I do not want to look like a woman in any way, no wig or makeup or anything of that sort, and I feel no desire to take on a woman's role, either psychologically or sexually. But I do like the feel of a certain clothing that most people deem appropriate only to women or effeminate men, namely lace and fishnets. Years ago, when my job had me outside, often my wife suggested that I try wearing pantyhose for warmth, as many hunters do. I tried it, and while it didn't work in my professional arena, I discovered that I enjoyed the feel of pantyhose themselves. Fast forward 20 years or so, maybe 25, and I have a small collection of lace thongs, a fishnet body stocking, lace pullover, and a lace robe. My wife and I are basically home nudists, and we tend very tend to wear very little at home, mostly going completely naked when we have no visitors. But when the temperature gets a little below, I find... Below what I find comfortable, I enjoy wearing the above-mentioned items for their warmth. Unexpected by some people, given their nature. And the feel of the material versus regular clothes, which I do not like at all. My wife is fully aware of this. I've worn them in her presence, of course, and understands that I'm not trying to acclimatize over time as I work my way towards cross-dressing. Uh, no. Lace and other effeminate fabrics used to be part of everyday male dress, but that seems to have gone away in our modern times. And I'm wondering, as to your opinion on the circumstances that I've described, if it isn't appropriate, manly, husbandly, Christian, or if this leans towards cross-dressing, effeminacy, or any ill-considered beliefs. Thanks for your time. Okay, <clears throat> so it sounds like you're looking for a set of rules that says, this is okay, but this isn't, and I I don't have it. I, I think that's too legalistic. 
I prefer to point at the principles. Uh, one, is it harming your family? Doesn't seem to be. Number two, is it rejection? Is it rejecting God's separation of genders? So you say your wife has no issue with it and you have no interest in cross-dressing, being effeminate, etc. So that answers those. One caveat, though. I have talked to women whose husbands struggle with cross-dressing and many have made the same statements that you did in this question as a rationalization, which then went further. In fact, the wife who asked uh, a previous question about cross-dressing, which I'll link to in the show notes, has said that her husband made the same arguments that you have. Uh, I'm not saying that this will definitely lead to cross-dressing. I'm saying be careful about your motivations and where your behaviors drift. All right, next question. I was 36 weeks pregnant when my husband told me he committed adultery. He was speaking to another girl online for a good two months behind my back and did porn before sleeping with her twice. He has told me he wants out of the marriage and has asked me to put his son up for adoption. I've also since found out that he has gambled away 50k and has been lying to me about it for a good four months. I've since approached him with the elders of the church, but he refused to repent. He has said sorry for what he's done, but he's still in contact with the girl, has slept with her again on the week that I delivered, and has gone overseas with her on consecutive weekends while I was in confinement with his child. He has blamed every one and everything for his actions, including his mortgage, his in-laws, me for not satisfying him emotionally and physically, job and job issues. I've been advised to proceed with a separation order as at his request, and his actions have released me from my marital vows. I really tried everything to bring him back to God and this marriage, so much that the stress of it has the stress of it all has caused my weight to plummet and my blood pressure to rise in the last few weeks of pregnancy. I had to be induced. He has said that it doesn't matter his walk on earth like the thief on the cross. If in his last moments he calls to Jesus, he will be saved. He has also said that the marriage is built on love, and once his love for me dips below a certain level, he wants out of the marriage. Should I give up on this marriage? It hurts because I still love him. Everyone is going to have a different opinion on this, and uh, it depends on your situation and who you are. For me, I'm pretty stubborn. If my spouse requested a separation order, I'd make them file it. Um, Actually, I'd probably make a judge order me to court to sign the papers but that's me and sometimes i have more stubbornness than good sense and i'm also not caring for caring for a newborn um and if it's literally becoming a health hazard for you and your child then yeah i think separation is in order as for his plan of i'll just repent on my best deathbed uh, i feel sorry for him uh for one not everyone gets that sort sort of time uh a lot of people die without any kind of warning whatsoever. Um, secondly, even if they do get the time, uh, if you have a habit of denying God over an entire lifespan, um, that will likely lead to a character that will harden their heart when the time comes. But even if he does uh, truly repent in those final moments, uh, the grief that will accompany a true confession and repentance, knowing the pain and suffering he's done waiting for that moment, I don't think that would be worth the life he's living now. Um, it's hard when people that we love just refuse uh, to live a life that's not going to continue to hurt them. And uh, Yeah, I feel sorry for him, uh, for you both. That's, that's a terrible situation to be in. Uh, I think sometimes you have to act uh, to protect yourself and your child. Um, 
I can't tell you what to do. It's outside of my legal or ethical scope. But as you said, he, he's already pretty much walked away. So I don't think you have anything much holding you back anymore. Our next question is about orgasmless sex. Uh, I would like to hear your opinion or from readers if anyone has tried slow sex or expanded orgasms or sex where orgasm is not the goal. Our experience so far has been fairly positive. When orgasm is off the table, for the most part, for the man, it increases sexual desire and often performance, and sex lasts much longer. No need for lube or foreplay as you both stay lubed up and ready for sex almost any time. Does anyone know about this? We've been married 40 plus years and we are in our 60s. Alright, so I'm, I'm a big fan of sex without the goal of orgasm. I like exploring, having fun, and just enjoying the connection, sharing, and vulnerability rather than trying to find the most efficient way to get off. Um, but just because the orgasm isn't the goal doesn't mean that orgasms don't happen. If you're deliberately trying not to have an orgasm, that's a whole other story. I personally don't have any experience with that. To be honest, I don't think I'm ready to try it yet, um, but I welcome our readers and listeners to comment on the post if they do. So maybe check out the comments. All right, the next question is really short. Uh, they just wrote, My wife sleeps during sex. What should I do? There's not a lot to go on here. So my only thoughts are, number one, if she's exhausted, let her sleep more. Number two, if she has a sleeping disorder, go to a doctor. And number three, if she's just bored out of her mind, you should probably have a conversation about how to make sex better. That's all I got. All right, question number eight. This person writes, I am really frustrated. My husband has a problem with ED. He, he's convinced me to try toys for him to use with me to assist in the areas he can. He likes to use them and says that he enjoys watching me get pleasure. Now is where the problem comes in. He's gotten me to overcome my inhibitions about him using toys. Now he doesn't want to come to bed or start using them until 12.30 or 1 a.m. He looks on his computer at work-related stuff from 11 to 12.30. By then, I'm too tired and don't want to be bothered. I've talked and talked until there's nothing left to talk about. Help! So my guess is you haven't set a boundary. If you don't know about boundaries, I'd highly suggest the book Keep Your Love On by Danny Silk. I'll link to it in the show notes. Others will suggest Boundaries in Marriage by Henry Cloud and John Townsend, which is honestly a good book too. But unfortunately, I've had a lot of people read it and still completely misunderstand what a healthy boundary is. Um, so I'd suggest the first book as it gives a better foundation for the why and the second book, uh, is better about the mechanics of how to set boundaries. So a healthy boundary in this case would simply be, I won't start sex after 11 p.m. because I need sleep. Um, that's it. <clears throat> this is going to require another conversation with your husband, which will go something like, you know, I love the fun that we have in the bedroom, but I can't start those things so late at night. I promise to be available by 10 p.m. most nights, but I can't start after 11 p.m. I'm too tired at that point, and I can't be a good sex partner that late or a good spouse the day after, and the lack of sleep is causing me to start to resent sex, and I'm worried it will cause me to start resenting you. So I need this boundary in place to protect our marriage, and of course adjust any of those numbers or feelings as you need and to match your style and vocabulary. You know, that way he knows the why, but it's also offering a reasonable window for when sex can happen. Then if he really wants to do work, he can have sex and then get up and work from 11 to 1230 if he needs to. All right, question number nine. 
what would you advise for a guy whose wife has a medical reason not to have sex? My wife has is in a flare for a disease where she can't have sex. Unfortunately, she's not big on oral sex, and she doesn't seem to want to manually help me out either. I used to be super high drive, but I've slowed down some, so it's a little easier to do without, but not my idea of good at all. This issue has contributed to me being depressed and the feeling I'm not worth much. I'm 45 and she is 37. Thanks for any advice that you might have to give. Um, Okay, so I don't know what the disease is or how long the flare-ups are or how they make her feel or what the actual issue is that's stopping it. So this one's going to be a little difficult to go on. It's harder to give options when you don't know what the specifics are. However, the general advice is to have a discussion and find some sort of balance. If the case is that she just can't have intercourse, but can be sexually stimulated, have orgasms, etc., then I'd say maybe try mutual masturbation. If she can't have orgasms, uh, can't be touched, or her genitals are completely off limits, then I'd probably have a discussion about what is on the table and why things are off the table. You said she's not big on oral sex, and she doesn't seem to want to help manually help me out either, but those both hint at the idea that you're interpreting these feelings, uh, not that you have direct input from her about how she feels. And as is often the case, you need to talk about it. Because this dynamic of not talking about it doesn't seem like it's working for you. You're feeling depressed and worthless, and she's likely feeling anxious and guilty if she, that she's not being a good wife. Um, so have a discussion about what is and isn't on the table, and come up with a plan for how to manage these flare-ups. All right, last question, number 10. Hi, Jay. I have a question about transitioning mindset from not allowing yourself to be sexually to being sexual in marriage. I'm getting married next year, and I feel a lot of guilt and shame when it comes to sex. How do you stop associating sex with sin after you get married? Thanks, Julie. Hi, Julie. Great question. Unfortunately, we do a terrible job in most of Christianity at prepping people for marriage. It's a shame because we really should be doing the best. I I mean, we believe in a God who created the concept of marriage, the idea of the people and the parts that go together to form sex, and even commanded us to have it and enjoy it. He even made uh, a clitoris for women with literally no purpose, but so that you will enjoy it. Um, Also, all the teachings about how to be kind and loving to other people work really well within marriage. Add to that conflict resolution and communication skills in the Bible and the fruit of the Spirit, and we should be set up to be a really good spouse. On top of that, the Bible teaches a great deal about personal finances, so Christians have no reason to have financial struggles, right? Unfortunately, we don't tend to teach couples about any of this stuff before marriage. We tend to bury it all and let them figure it out in the guise of being kind and modest. And really, I think it's because we're all stuck in a cycle and no one knows how to get out of it. We were all raised this way by our parents, and that messed up our marriages, so we really don't know how to help others with theirs. And often by the time we figured it out, our children are already grown and on their way to hampering the next generation. But you're doing something different. You are asking before you get married, which is absolutely awesome. Uh, this is an opportunity to break the cycle. So how do you stop it? And honestly, I haven't given it a whole lot of thought, but I think I should. Actually, I've given it a fair bit of thought, but not enough, because I still don't have like a perfect solution to just hand you and say, this is what you have to do. You know, over the last nearly eight years, I've been focusing almost purely on marriages themselves, but I'm slowly learning that if we could get ahead of the marriage, it would be a lot easier. We can't solve all the problems, but we could at least get people on the right track to start off. 
And some of the problems are harder to overcome, like the one that you pose. How do you change your mindset from sex is sinful to sex is godly? And the truth is that you should never have to. Uh, we should not be raising children to believe that sex is sinful, because it's not. What's sinful is the wrong context. Why? Because sex is amazing and powerful, and in the wrong situation, it can hurt you. You know, it's like fire. In a fire pit or on a stove to cook, it is an incredible tool that can bring joy to your life. Outside of a safe container, it's destructive and can ruin your life. And we should be children teaching children uh, not yet rather than no when it comes to sex. We should be teaching them about how amazing sex is when it's in a committed marriage that's built on unconditional love, trust, communication, commitment, where pregnancy is seen as a blessing, not an inconvenience at best. And the best way I know how to do it is to read your Bible. Sex is portrayed in a wonderful light in the Bible, in the right context. In Hebrew, the new euphemism for sex used most often is to know your spouse. It gives the idea that having sex is intimate, that it makes you both vulnerable and open. It's that sharing of yourself with someone who is sharing themselves back again. And that's really how sex can be in a marriage. But when it's outside of marriage, sex shows how powerful it is how badly it needs a safe container. The Bible is full of stories of rape, incest, people being taken advantage of, opening their marriages, having multiple wives, even killing others so that they can sleep with a person's spouse. Sex, when separated from marriage, destroys. Now, if you're only ever given that second message that sex is sinful and destroys and ruins everything, then it's no wonder that you feel a lot of guilt and shame about it. So I'd say read through your Bible. Look at what sex does when it's in a loving marriage. Genesis tells us that God created us to have sex, even before the fall. Sex is not a result of sin. In fact, God put Adam and Eve in a garden paradise with no fear or anxiety, uh, naked and unashamed with perfect bodies and a mate literally created for each other. I think they were likely trying to figure out how to put those bodies together soon after. And the first commandment that we're given as humans is to have sex. That's before sin ever entered the world. I've yet to see that commandment rescinded. You know, I've seen a lot of warnings about how powerful sex is, but never in the Bible does it say you should not have it in the right context. In fact, in the right context, it's commanded that we have sex because it then becomes so beneficial, it would be a sin not to have sex. As well, you can read through Song of Solomon to tell you more about what God thinks of sex. People still debate whether this is about a husband and wife or God and the church. I personally think it's between a husband and wife. But even if it's allegorical, it means that God is perfectly okay with his love for us being depicted as an afternoon sex session out in the vineyards between the vines and all the passion that goes with that. Uh, My point is, if you want to know how to change your mindset, read your Bible. It's all in there. I don't know of a better reference. Now, there are some that can help you understand pieces. There's a great book called uh, Intimacy Ignited that will help lead you step-by-step through Song of Solomon, explaining both the expressions of how much of a blessing sex is, as well as the warnings, pitfalls, dangers that such a powerful ex- activity is surrounded with. I also highly suggest having a frank discussion with your fiancé about it. Tell him how you feel. Tell him your struggles, anxieties, and insecurities. It is good for him to know about it, and it's good to learn to have difficult discussions. Maybe he has some concerns, too, and you can both talk through them and work together to create a plan for dealing with it. And lastly, if you both want some help, 
individually or together, I'm trained as a pre-marriage coach. Send me an email at uh, j at uncoveringintimacy.com and we can talk through it. I can try to find you, help you find uh, more resources that fit uh, what exactly your anxieties are about or we can talk through things uh, over email or a phone call and we can try to set you up on the right foot. And that's all the questions for this episode. If you have a question of your own, you can email me. I'll put the address in the show notes or you can visit our anonymous have a question page on the website if you're feeling shy. All the links are in the show notes uh, in your podcast player, or you can visit the blog post on uncoveringintimacy.com. If you're tired of waiting to hear all the questions, um, consider supporting us and gaining access to our supporters form. I post all the anonymous questions there, and everyone gets to discuss them, offer their thoughts immediately. So if that's of interest to you, check out our support page. Uh, That's it for now. We'll have another podcast out soon. See ya.